Welcome to the DIY Recording Equipment Podcast. I'm Peterson Goodwin, and today I'm interviewing Paul Wolf. Uh, now, I've interviewed a lot of amazing gear designers before on this show, but I've never interviewed anyone before who's actually designed a large format console. Well, Paul's designed a few. Uh, he designed a few for API, and then he launched his own Tonelux brand. And these days, he's working on a custom console under his Fix Audio brand. Uh, So Paul has been around, including uh, owning API for almost 20 years, designing the legendary API 2500 compressor, the API 3124 4-channel preamp. Really, Paul's done it all. He was gracious enough to sit down with me for a bit and uh, talk about his career and console design, and how he has seen the audio industry change uh, since he's been in it. So we start our conversation um, by talking about how Paul got into electronics and audio in the first place. I, um, I, you know, I was brought up around music. My mom wrote a book about being the only all-girl band. So, you know, then I went on, I went on the road and I ended up at a club in, in Michigan. And actually, the guys on the road, one of the guys on the road is now the music director for all the, the, the country music shows, um, the, the award shows they have. Um, this guy, Ed Struble, he and another guy, the guitar player in the band who recently passed away, uh, they were the ones that actually called, named me Fix because I got that when I was, I was in a, <clears throat> a TV repair shop when the guitar player walked in and his guitar was, the jack had twisted around and it broke off, and the guy there had no clue. So I, I took it apart on his bench and soldered the wire, and the kid said, well, you know, we'll call you Fix. And, and that's that was oh, wow. from that point on. And they got a, a, a job in a nightclub called The Bayou. Uh, we just actually released a uh, documentary. It was pretty cool um, about the history because it goes all the way back to the 40s. And there we did, you know, I was the house sound man there and, and one of the managers, and I did sound for, um, we did a lot of showcase bands when they when they first came out. So we did, um, uh, I did sound for Foreigner, uh, Dire Straits, uh, Pat Benatar, people like Molly, wow. Hatchett, you know, Todd Rundgren, people like that. If they didn't have sound, and hang on, I'm going to open my window. If they didn't have sound men, I did their sound, and if they did have sound men, I ended up doing most of it anyway, just because of the familiarity of the place. And then we had a we had a Soundcraft console. We had, we started out with a uh, with an Altec 1220 console, and then I took I took two of them and merged them together, so we had 20 inputs. Oh, and, I mean, it was like it was. We were closed on Mondays, and Sunday night I took it all apart. Monday I joined them together, and Tuesday we had a show. <laughs> And I put, um, I built a flanger and a doubler, and I had them. I had insert switches on all the channels, so you could just flip it in and hit a master, and then you could double everything. Of course, so every band had to do life in the fast lane, and wow. Mm-hmm. So, it, it so it sounds like almost like your whole life was kind of pushing you towards designing these things. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I, I had an interest as a kid. Um, with electronics, I build all kinds of stuff. I mean, I you know took our stereo system and tore it apart and turned it into a guitar amp, and I built light shows for people, you know, color organs for people. I had, you know, I was a shitty guitar player in a band, so I had bands and stuff, and we had just a lot of uh, a lot of really cool stuff. I mean, I did I did all kinds of shit. My parents were very 
supportive of anything I wanted to do. Same with my brother and my sister. We, they were just great parents, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, then I ended up in D.C. and was at the studio. We had a studio that I got a job at. We had an APSI console at APSI. And we had three 550 EQs and a Stevens tape machine. And a really nice, we had the, the what we used to call the Death Star, which was the... Uh, JBL uh, 4350 monitors, or I don't know, the, the, they had the 215s, the 10, and the horn, and they were just like louder than shit. Okay. Yeah, we had those, we had Oritones, and then uh, we, we ended up buying the Sunset Sound Studio One console. And we had that in our studio, and that was the console that did Van Halen and Janis Joplin and the Doors and, you know, all this shit. Mm-hmm. So we had that there, and while we were, we had a um, a seminar there because we were a Synclavier dealer, and uh, okay, and an Aphex dealer as well. So we had an Aphex and we had a, a Synclavier, and this guy came out from this company in Virginia that said, "Hey, you know, this company just bought API, and they're looking for people to you know work for them." So I went out there, and that's where I met Saul Walker, and and we became real good friends. I started working there, and we built. That's when the 550A, 550A-1 thing, which you know is before most people's times now, but it was a nightmare. Mm -hmm. uh, that was when they, all that started going. <clears throat> we had we built two big consoles. We came up with a bunch of stuff, um, and then while we were doing that, we did a lot of job shopping stuff because we were owned. The company was actually owned by Atlantic Research. The company started building. Um, they they developed. The, the telecom division of our company developed the credit card slide thing for payphones. So when you go into, a, you know, go into an airport and there's a payphone sitting there and you slide a card through it and pick your long-distance service, they were the ones that invented that. And New Jersey Bell, which was one of the, the broken-up Bells, wanted mm -hmm. to buy it. So they wanted to sell it, and they, they couldn't sell it because they owned API, and API... May put on like I don't know half a million dollars under the assets. Okay. Get rid of it. So they had to get rid of API. Nobody would buy it because they didn't technically own it. So they just said, you know, Saul Walker took me aside and just told me what the deal was and just said, you know, put a bid in, buy it. So I did. Uh huh. And I I bought API. So that's how you ended up owning API. <laughs> wow. And I was and the, no different than the guy at the. At the deli. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And then, so how long did you own API? 19 years. 19 years. So the really the whole kind of modern brand that we think of as API, it had kind of gone away and then was resurrected when you bought it? Well, they were doing, you know, they were doing like the 2488s and they had the 550A, they had the 554 and they had the uh, 525 and then they had the 560 EQ and that was it. Okay. Datatronics actually came up with the first 10-slot rack, and at the same time, Marvin Caesar from Aphex took and started making lunchboxes, which they weren't called mm -hmm. lunchboxes at the time. They were called a, like an AX4 or something. And people started putting API modules in these, these boxes, except they weren't exactly pinned out the same way, because he made, a, he made an, an EQ and a compressor. Mm. But it turns out that nobody was buying those racks because uh, they weren't buying the EQs and stuff. They were buying API stuff and putting them in those racks and making these these portable things. And Art Kelm started doing this for artists. And he's the one that kind of coined the term lunchbox. 
Oh. Yeah. So he was doing that. Well, that was the first. The, the when Marvin decided to discontinue the box, I took it over. I asked him if I could build them, if he would mind, and he said no. He sent me some of the plans and stuff. So I started building them, and then I met Art, and we the first rack that we made went to um, Steve Perry. Huh. It had a pre ink really? presser and a and a and a fader in it, and that was that. And his microphone was basically his guitar and amp. I mean, no matter where he went, it always sounded he always sounded like him because of that. Hmm. So he coined the term lunchbox, so we started making lunchboxes. And I just recently got inducted into the um, the the NAM Tech Hall of Fame for being the the father of the lunchbox. I guess. Oh wow! Yeah. So when you when you started API back up, I mean, was there much of a mess? It's hard. For, I mean, <laughs> well, so it's hard for me now to imagine a world before API was such a brand in pro audio. When you started the company back up, what was the brand equity, I guess, of API? Were they were those consoles revered at the time, or were they just in the consoles? There were two consoles in the world that really that made a difference. I mean, you know, you could argue there's a million people that made consoles, but it was Neven, it was API. And it was basically, mm -hmm. an API had two coasts. They had the New York sound and they had the LA sound. And the New York sound was more 560 EQs, more aggressive. The LA sound was more Doobie Brothers, you know, and stuff. And then you had the Neve stuff, um, which was more of European. And then you had, you know, you had brands like Trident, people like that. But those, those right. two that were mass produced. Okay, so it was... The, the the name was still very well known and, and highly regarded when oh, yeah, you bought pretty, the assets. Everybody, they, they couldn't wait to buy the shit. Interesting. Yeah. So was the, when you say there's the, the New York sound and the L.A. sound, what actually, like, on a component level was the difference there? Um, I think, the you know, the 550A, of course, you know, because it had three bands and had shelving high and shelving low, you had more you know, shelving tone, you know, more of like broader, you know, tonal quality stuff. And in New York with a lot of the five sixties, you had more peaks, you know, so Oh, I see more okay. mid ranges and presences and, you know, like a more rock and roll kind of sound. Whereas the West coast was more of the smooth sound. Gotcha. And that, so it was this, yeah, that was largely because of that. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So when when you started it back up, what was your first project? Did you start making the kind of the the compressors or the well the very quote unquote the very first outboard thing, stuff or did you make consoles? The very first thing we did is we started making the 550A again, and of course there was no 512 because it didn't exist. It was a the, the original 512 was a two and a half inch tall module that fit in consoles and it was discontinued. Mm -hmm. um, so there was no mic pre's. Everybody's using the 300 cards. And so that's when I designed the 3124. That was the very first product that I ever de designed. And it actually, I think it's still the same, the board. And and that's the four-channel mic pre. Yeah, the four-channel mic pre. It came with the little mixer and a send or just the mic pre. And that was based on the 312 card? That was the 312, yeah. Okay. And that's why, and that, that's why it was called the 3124. Gotcha. And so were you using, um, whose op-amp design did you use at that point? Were oh, no, you, it was the 2520. It was the 2520. Were there new refinements to it or has, okay. So that, that was the original, that was Saul's 
2520. The, the, the thing that people don't realize about the 2520 is, you know, from its inception to when I bought the company, it went through like seven different revisions. Mm-hmm. And that's why the, you've got the Huntingtons and you have the Farmingtons and you've got, you know, all those weird things. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, there, there were never room. Was that, were those attempts to make it more linear or run cooler or? You got to remember in those days. Draw less current or. Tech and Rupert and Saul and people like that. They weren't trying to make something that someone would say, oh my God, in 50 years, this is going to be awesome. They just tried to make things as good as they could with what they uh-huh. had. They weren't trying to make the world's best op amp. When the API made those op amps, there were no ICs. So they had to make op amps. <laughs> right. And the same with Rupert. Right. Rupert went the Class A route. API went the Class A B route. And mm-hmm. the, the, the design that, that API used, that, that square thing, was a instrumentation um, design. It was used for data collection because all the old computers were analog. Mm-hmm. So they needed to have these op amps, and they had trim. Con- That's why there's a trim on on the older ones. There's a trim pin that you would right. trim the offset because they would do summing, numerical summing with op amps, and have you could get an. Amp- they would do operations. Right? Do operations with them. That's why they called them yeah. operational amplifiers. So, I mean, they, these guys weren't trying to get laid designing audio equipment. These guys were like. You know, API started out doing automated stage sets. The big, the things that come down like that. They had them set up so they could hit a button and they would come down. That's what they started doing. And uh huh. And then you get somebody that that says, uh, "Can you guys make a mic preamp? Because we want to amplify this." And they do that. And then they get, "Can you guys make a, an equalizer so we can EQ the mic preamps?" And they did that. And then someone said, "Can you put this in a box and sell it as a console?" And then they did that. And then all of a sudden, you wake up and you're in the console business. Oh, wow. When you built the 2520 into the 3124, was that an intentional way to to say, like, hey, here's the API sound in one rack unit? Well, the problem was is because everybody was freaked out because they thought, okay, new company, it sounds different, you know. So we had an uphill battle. We had to We had to make it authentic or people wouldn't buy it because everybody was so picky. And it mm-hmm. was it was just a horror story. One of the problems, and we didn't find this out, Jeff Bork actually figured it out many years later, that one of the reasons why the, the API sound changed was because in the old days, they used to wind the transformers with ribbon wire. And they would actually have four pieces of wire that were stuck together, and they would wind the transformers with that. And because of that, the transformers had a very even pack, and you didn't get the interleaving which causes hmm. you know uh, high inductance and it causes capacitance between the layers. Mm-hmm. So when you're winding like a quad filer transformer, is four windings that are identical. So they would just go and they were done. But the problem ah. is this is actually across the board. This happened in 1978, and it, we didn't figure it out until many many years later. But in 1978, a lot of the audio stuff in the world changed because most companies did not put that in as a specification. It was the transformer mm. companies that just did it mm. because it was cheaper for them. They could they could wind a transformer in in ten seconds. So when they when the company that made the ribbon wire, there's a couple of companies they went out of business. And so what happened uh-huh. is they just put four spools of wire up, and now they were just winding in quad filer, but they were all getting intertwined, and the the transformer had this resonance at eighty kilohertz. 
And between that and the op-amp, the op-amp was designed with the transformer. The transformer changed, so now the op-amp sounded different. So that was basically the difference. And if you're talking about a little pie-shaped boost that you start out at 1K and you take up a half a dB at 20K, you can hear that because there's mm -hmm. all that energy. It's not just one frequency. It's that whole energy area. Interesting. So the, <clears throat> so you were using the same, what is it, the 2503? Is that the, yeah, the output? Yeah, same people were making it. And it was, you know, and we also went to surface mount on the op amps, but the, the fact with that was that the the input transformers were or input transistors were no longer available with through hole. They were available uh -huh. in surface mount. So it was actually a better sounding it sounded more like the original op amp, <clears throat> but it was the transformer that was causing the problem. Wow. So Jeff finally figured it out and we figured out a way to simulate the same effect of the ribbon wire by winding them differently. And that basically happened probably three or four years before I sold the company. Oh, wow. So it was really decades after... It was just a nightmare. It was just a, a, a fucking, you know, these guys that were building all the cloning stuff, all the cloners out there were just, they were just beating us to death. Interesting. Yeah. Because the, because that there were all, all these variables that went into that sound that when they were first when the 312 was first designed nobody thought to specify right. how it was wound or no yeah so there was interesting when it changed nobody knew right yeah that's wild oh yeah so just that that you know that's one of those things and and we couldn't wow. get we could not get anybody to look at us sideways it was like there was a curse on us and nobody would buy a console from us this was this was the mid '90s. Yeah, this was the mid '90s. Okay, so you you got back into consoles. That was your first console. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, we had done some and, refurbs. We did a few refurb refurbished consoles, but then we got into the console, and so that's when I hired Dan Zimbelman. Focusrite had fallen apart, and he was leaving, and so we brought him in, and together he and I came up with the Legacy, which was the the smaller input module and stuff like that, and we sold our first one at a trade show to Green Street Studios and delivered it on time three months later. And I literally hid in a closet and designed the thing. I mean, I went home and I had my system set up literally in a closet because it was so quiet. And uh -huh. I designed the circuit boards. I designed the mechanical stuff. I designed the silk screens, everything. We put that console in Green Street Studios and we put it in on a Friday and on Tuesday they had... You know, they had an artist in there. I, don't, I think it was Dave Matthews or somebody. Uh huh. Yeah, I mean, it was like, you know. So we got a lot of promotion. We started selling those. I think we sold 30 some of those consoles. And then we came out, people wanted more than eight buses or 16 buses. So we came out with the Legacy Plus. Mm -hmm. And the Legacy Plus had, uh, you know, more buses and it had more sends and it had a large and small fader. Got it. <laughs> and so how was that? Um... How were those designs related to your previous preamps and, and EQs? Well, they were the same. I mean, it was just, they were the same. We just used the smaller transformer, but was the, which was the same as in the 2488s. So, I mean, there was, gotcha. there was no difference. The, 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 the sound carried through, which ended up being a curse at the end. But, you know, the sound, we had to keep it consistent. So the Legacy had all that stuff. And that's when I designed the... The 225 compressor. There's an early version which was kind of like the 
525, and then there was a different one that I designed as a VCA compressor. Then I mm -hmm. hired Trevor Stride, who did the Focusrite uh, Dynamics. He designed a noise gate. And then I designed a filter. I designed a direct box. I designed, uh, I don't know, a couple other weird things for the mm -hmm. two, what we call the 200 series. And we made a 200 rack, and those are also the modules for the consoles. Yeah. So and there were 12 channels to a bucket instead of eight. And the console was smaller. It was an inch and a quarter wide per module. And we sold a lot of those legacies. I mean, we, you know, it was great. And then we did the Legacy Plus. And then, um, you know, th this whole period of thing, the, the problem was is we were self-funded. We had no credit line. We had nothing. So everything mm -hmm. was always hand-to-mouth. We barely, every month we barely made it, which was, it turns out that's how everybody was. Yeah. You know, <laughs> what it, you know, what really happened with Neve and API in the early days was every console in the world needed a console. So they built consoles for everybody. I mean, they were building three consoles a month, both of them. They were growing like crazy. And then uh -huh. everybody had a console. And then now what do you do? So you have this right. tree, and what are you doing? You're selling consoles to your newest customers and consoles to your oldest customers. But that backfilled middle area, market saturation. Right. That's when they right. both they both did a nosedive in the in the nineteen seventy eight. Yeah, they hadn't figured out planned obsolescence yet, you know. Well that's the problem. I mean those consoles, mm -hmm. some of those consoles are still used. I mean most of them are still in, in service, you know. Right. And then then you know, it just got to the point where I, I could not we were so big that it was just like one mistake and you're you're in debt, you know. And it got to the point where I just couldn't do it anymore. And so I sold it and that's when the current company bought it. And the last right. one of the last things I did before I sold the company was I designed the uh, the twenty five hundred compressor, right? Which is legendary, legendary, become a classic faster than yeah. than most things. So, what's it been like to see? It's interesting to hear you talk about the era in which Pro Audio was this super low volume, you know, therefore had to be good margins you know basically working for clients that you could call on the phone to being pretty much a, a consumer market now i mean it's uh, a lot of the companies are doing high volume very low margin kind of things what's it been like to see the industry transform in that way well yeah i mean we still had a tight margin because most things were handmade and we didn't surface mount hadn't really come out yet so mm -hmm. everything was through hole um so our margin to dealers were 20 20 to 25 percent there were no 40s and 50s you know i mean it huh. was it was expensive stuff and the list prices were high I yeah mean, the rule used to be and that was actually that that stood true up to about a year ago or about about five years ago um the rule used to be you know a thousand bucks for an eq thousand bucks for a compressor 700 bucks for a mic pre that was kind of like the rule if you were in right that range you could sell it but it had to be good uh-huh and, you know, then you get, you know, you get somebody like, you know, like Lindell. I've done a couple of designs with him. He's a great guy. He just knows how to manufacture. And he came out with a $300 mic pre EQ compressor and just mm -hmm. totally changed the world because everybody had to compete with him because the stuff's right. good. I mean, it wasn't like API or Neve, but for 300 bucks versus I can't afford this at all. Right. You know, and I mean, now a thousand bucks is, is high end. Yeah. A thousand bucks is like, but. At the same time, if you have something that's worthwhile, people will still spend the money. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's incredible. I mean, 
I would never would have imagined, uh, even 10 years ago, that we'd be looking at having hundred, literally hundreds of different mic preamps on the market. I know. Uh, it's it's yeah. totally like, you know, I look at these things and there was that there was Lunchbox Hero, which was a website that was actually up to date for a long time that listed yeah. all the 500 stuff. And that was amazing. And that wasn't even that wasn't even half of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and you yeah. had like little duck and you had all these weird, you know, they just came out with one thing and it's like, right. And then Jeff, yeah, I mean, you know, look at Jeff Steiger doing what he's doing, you know, doing that stuff. And, you know, I helped him mm-hmm. design of that knob because he was, you know, it was, it was really annoying the API people. So I just right. suggested, hey, let's, you know, change it up a little bit and let me, you know, send you off something. And, you know, I mean, he's, he's done a tremendous job. His stuff looks like a clone of API, but it's not. I mean, it's really mm-hmm. incredible shit, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, even just in my little DIY world, I mean, Hairball and mm-hmm. uh, Jeff and Sound Sculptor and Five Fish Audio. I mean, just just in the DIY world, that's like, uh, there got to be 10 companies making different preamps. And, um, yeah, they're all, they're all great. And part of the reason that they're all great is that we're all standing on the shoulders of giants. I mean, we've, all the principles are there. You know, nobody's reinventing the wheel. Nobody has to design the op amp from scratch anymore. (laughs) And, and I think that, you know, what I like about this is there's a lot of people that are real, you know, I, I absolutely, I actually deplore cloners. I think those people should be like burned to death. I hate it. I absolutely hate that because they're trading on the laurels of literally stealing from someone else. That I don't mm-hmm. like. But when someone takes someone else's design and they make changes to it and then they sell it, I think that's cool. That's innovation. You know. Right. And now, that's being Bob Dylan. Yeah. 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 Right. yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. So I, I look at that, but I also, you know, to me, I don't see it as you know, the snobs of the world don't have control of the recording industry anymore. I see that as you look at the old days when you had to, um, you know, you had to rent a studio to record your song. It really limited the ability of the art to get out there. It's like charging, mm-hmm. you know, $100 for a paintbrush. How many painters would there be? They already went through that. Uh-huh. The audio industry hadn't gone through that yet. And then you got the Porta Studio. And then you started getting the, the, the Tascam stuff. And people started recording. But it was still kind of expensive. And you had mm-hmm. to know a lot. Then, you know, along comes Pro Tools. And Pro Tools had the basic system. And they did the same model, business model, as, as AutoCAD. AutoCAD didn't give a shit if people stole their product. If they wanted uh, support, they had to buy a license. Which was cool. You know? And so now with Pro Tools and with inexpensive interfaces and a laptop, anybody and their brother can express their art. So, yeah, there's a lot more of it and there's a lot more shit, but there's also a lot more really good stuff. Mm -hmm. It's a dream. Mm -hmm. It's the dream. They're fulfilling the dream of these people. And some people don't have it, you know, but they have the ability to find out. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a great perspective. Yeah, I, I really like that. And at the same time, one of the most important things that and that that's one thing if you're, you know, if you have this attitude like you should be honored to have a recording system, then you're going to end up failing. The other right. one is 
technology. And one of the things that, that I found with API was that I had to make everything sound like API. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it wasn't API. It was always compared to the 550A or the 512. Right. When I started Tone Lux, I designed my own transformer. I designed my own. I designed two op amps of my own, and came out with a totally different sound that was kind of a mix between API and Neve because I did not want to clone API. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to clone Neve. I wanted to do my, what I wanted to do. But what I realized when I when I started Tone Lux is that, and I and I when I do seminars and I talk to to people and kids especially, I tell them I go. You know, technology is a train, and it's moving along at 40 miles an hour. And you can't, you, you, nobody can stop a train. A train will go through the side of a mountain. You can't, uh -huh. it's moving, period. No questions. Now you have two choices. You can either stand on the side and wave goodbye, or you can be on the train and you can move with it. Right. And I always say, my preference is, I want to be driving the train. Yeah. Well, this has been phenomenal. Um, <laughs> uh, truly, it's been great to get so much insider story on this stuff that uh, you usually never get to know kind of how it came about. Or I so. mean, when I was, you know, when I was, you know, 30, I was listening to Saul Walker tell the stories, and now I'm the guy telling the stories. So there you go.